Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by ErisX.com, the Stellar Development Foundation, and Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. Here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Tuesday, May 26th. And those of you who listen regularly know that I spend a lot of time thinking about narratives. Narratives for me are the way that we make sense of complex phenomena. They're the way that we orient lots of information and make it make sense contextually. But narratives are a battleground. Narratives are constantly in flux, and narratives, because they interpret the world around us, different narratives offer different competing interpretations, and those tend to create political battle. You see this all the time in the crypto industry as people compete to define and explain what's important and why and what people should spend their time on and ergo where people should put their investment within. Narrative battlegrounds become the way that resources are allocated in some contexts like that. I think about narratives all the time, and I'm excited to have a guest today who thinks about narratives in a really unique way as well. My guest is Jeff Lewis. Jeff was previously at Founders Fund, where he led investments in companies like Lyft, and is one of the two founding partners of Bedrock Capital. When Bedrock Capital was announced in 2018, they announced it with a letter that got a lot of attention for talking about narrative violations. And effectively, their thesis was that instead of looking for companies that met the conventional wisdom about how the world was or how the world was changing, they were going to go look for companies that actually violated current narratives in ways that they thought were powerful and offered an opportunity for asymmetric return. As you'll see in this conversation, the idea of narrative violations is not something that I think is, strictly speaking, a venture capitalist or investing concept alone. I think it's about a way of seeing the world and trying to peel back narratives to understand what the counter-narrative might be. I think especially now, that's a really important skill. Being able to see through narrative mirage, which is another term of Jeff's, is a really, really important skill. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And as always, interviews that are long like this, we edit only very lightly to keep the conversation as natural as it was. So with that, let's dive in. All right, we are back with Jeff Lewis. Jeff, thanks so much for joining. Good to be here. So I remember when, uh, when you launched your venture fund, uh, you launched it with a letter which got a ton of buzz. And the, the central conceit or one of the central ideas was the search for narrative violations. Um, this is something that obviously that I, I think about uh, a huge amount, uh, in, in just narratives in general. Um, I think they're hugely uh, important and often under um, examined force in society and business. But I'd love to hear just from you what the what this idea of, of narrative violations really means and, and how did this uh, notion of organizing capital around it start to start to form? Sure. Uh, so, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd start off by saying that it's it, it's sort of um, the power of narrative is sort of one of these things that um, that sort of always been hiding in in plain sight in in, in business, and so it's it, it's sort of like uh, for, for the narratives to work, um, you can't uh, explicitly uh, it, you can't explicitly talk about them uh, in in the context of of being a narrative. And so you know there's a there's a sense in which uh, you know Bitcoin became a store of value, 
um, because uh, because people believed uh, that it was it was going to become a store of value. But if you actually said, well, we need this store of value narrative to work for Bitcoin to become valuable, uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't have become valuable over over time. So there's a sense in which the narratives are are very powerful. They they sort of have an impact across all areas of business, the markets, uh, and then it's sort of uh, very dangerous to talk about to talk about them explicitly as narratives. Uh, because you might uh, you might burst you might burst burst the bubble and they might they might stop working and so what you know what we um, what we wanted to try and do with with bedrock was um, you know in venture in, in venture capital um, there are sort of two ways that you can two ways that you can make money you can either uh, you can either um, sort of uh, invest in something that people generally believe is going to work so you can be sort of more bullish uh, than than everyone else on something that that folks are already bullish on, and so you know recent examples of of that would be something like uh, you know Figma, which is sort of a design uh, collaboration tool where sort of everyone's sort of felt it's going to work for a long time, and folks can just compete to pay higher prices to invest. But there's sort of a consensus view that it's a business that's clearly working uh, on the in the consumer space. Um, you know, something like uh, like Snapchat's been doing well in the public markets. You can sort of, obviously, Amazon is sort of consensus good company. So you can um, you you can in, when these businesses are private, you can be more bullish than than everyone else on something that everyone's bullish on, uh, or you can be uh, bullish on something that others are others are bearish on. Uh, so you can believe something's going to work that that others just think is going to fail. Um, you know, in my case, Lyft would be sort of the modal example. When I led the the financing round in that company, it was like everyone thought it was this crazy thing with these pink mustaches that was going to get destroyed by Uber. This was back in, in 2012. Uh, but with Bitter, what we wanted to do is try and carve out this third way um, of of actually um, what are businesses, what are markets that are just completely uh, not captured in the narrative at all. So uh, the narratives are always these hyper polarized. It's either uh, you know, going to change the world and and and, and give way to this sort of utopia, uh, or it's it's sort of uh, going to destroy the world. And then technology, the narratives are are especially polarized uh, in in a positive or negative direction. And so our whole idea around around narrative violations, which we wrote in our letter, is uh, can you find companies that that are that are not captured in, in either one of those extremes and and actually uh, powerfully cut against uh, or ignored by by sort of the the narrative and. Um, you know, I'll, I'll pause there. But sort of one of the one of the implicit things in uh, in narrative violations is uh, is is that the narratives tend to be um, tend have historically tended uh, to to originate from the media. So there's a sense in which uh, in narrative violations investing strategy uh, is kind of a contra legacy media uh, investing strategy. So you sort of do uh, the you would sort of want to avoid things that the legacy media is hyper focused on? It's interesting. I think uh, we'll talk a lot about uh, about media because I I do think that it's a it's a good um, it's a good note I think to to start or or to have right in this upfront where it is interesting how much of this. Uh, this new kind of mental space. It's interesting because in a lot of ways, and I think that you you experience this a lot uh, in your conversations on Twitter, you're bringing this idea of of this as an investment discipline or investment strategy. But really, it's kind of a, weighing the world, a way of seeing the world strategy that happens to have investing implications if you want to sort of apply it to that. I mean, is that a fair, uh, fair, fair thing to say? 
yeah, it's a it's a fair thing to say. It's, it's sort of how how one can make money with it. So that's that's sort of why why one would want to invest against it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, one of the th- the parts of the letter I was rereading it before our conversation, and uh, and you guys wrote allowing a popular narrative to decide for you is the most seductive of shortcuts, and I thought that was a really a, a particularly insightful line. Um, and so I guess you know we're now living in this uh, this world where the narratives seem pretty up for grabs. I mean, is that your sense coming out of COVID that there's been kind of a big Overton window shift on some previous firmly held narratives or or do you think it's uh it's been overstated because we've been living through this um the the the, the actually i guess let me be clarify do you think that the uh the the scale of these shifts in in you know people's bands of perception uh are 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 truly expanded or is that a, a momentary blip based on kind of the strange uh strange situation of quarantine well you know i'd i'd like to i'd like to believe that 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 it's the I'd like to believe that it's the former, and so I'm certainly uh, seduced by the idea, uh, seduced by the idea of believing that that folks actually realize that the narrative gatekeepers actually haven't really known what they're talking about, and the fact that um, the fact that we had sort of no um, comprehensive pandemic preparedness plan, and there was no sort of uh, you know mobilization of all the smartest people in the country to you know, back in, back in February to figure out what we ought to be doing. And instead it's sort of just been this haphazard disaster at literally every level, at the federal level, municipal level, the state level. Um, uh, it's, I, I, you know, the, all the way in which the stimulus has been executed, uh, to me, uh, feels, uh, sort of extraordinarily dangerous cure, you know, the, the sort of economic cure is going to be worse than the virus over, over many years, certainly one would. Well, it's seductive to believe that um, that, uh, that that everyone sort of sees that the emperors, quote unquote, uh, have no clothes. Uh, but then at the same time, I actually um, I actually uh, feel that most people um, you sort of experience. I think most people will just experience this as a sort of hyper traumatic event. And when a sort of hyper traumatic event happens. You sort of just want to forget that it happened uh, and, and sort of move on with your life. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I sort of think there's going to be this bifurcation where on the one hand, there's the subset of, 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 of the world that the Overton window has been sort of massively expanded for. And, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that's a very positive thing. And on the other hand, I worry that actually uh, it, it just um, it, 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 it uh, I, I worry that uh, sort of not enough people sort of have the ability to think about these things in this way. And, and therefore it's sort of just weird, just this weird degradation. It's like everything is the way it was except worse or something like that. Yeah. It's, you know what I I was kind of watching, I think this is a strange thing to celebrate, but I think that there is actually something potentially good in the fact that the crisis of institutional leadership was so cross-cutting across every every political perspective, every political party, every type of institution, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and there was a moment where I think, you know, it, it could have been a conversation more broadly about the nature of those institutions that caused such spectacular failure. But instead, it, it, as it, as it seemingly always does, just created new battle lines around the same culture war, right? Like instead of having a, a mass conversation about, uh, a, 
about how we let ourselves get into this and what sort of structural things we need to change, it so quickly became the much easier like masks as a symbol for you know what what you already believed politically going into this, and that that's a, a perhaps um not surprising but certainly a bummer I think from from where I'm sitting. Yeah, it's 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 been really, really, really disappointing. You know, I, I sent this tweet early on in the in the epidemic that that the virus broke woke, and and I think that uh, I think it probably did break break the sort of woke uh, the the old version of woke, but now there's sort of this even dumber. It's been replaced with sort of even even dumber, uh, even dumber culture war around around masks, around uh, you know, around opening up or not. And I'd like to point out that I don't think this is a uniquely U.S. Uh, phenomenon. So I would, I would argue that actually, um, in in most of the Western countries, uh, there have sort of been versions of of, of the same thing uh, that, that sort of played out. It's sort of maybe less polarized, but um, you know, there's this this writer. France, obviously, one of the countries in Europe that's been quite hard hit, and there's this this writer, French writer, Welbeck, on uh, sort of. Uh, you know, he, he writes in this open letter that he published uh, about a month ago, um, sort of, the, you know, try and translate it. The way the ec- ep- epidemic has panned out is remarkably normal. Um, uh, COVID-19 is a banal virus with no redeeming qualities. It's not even sexually transmitted. Um, it will only push further the obsolescence of human relationships <laughs> and, 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 and ends with, uh, the West has not the eternal divine right to be the richest and most developed zone in the world. And that's sort of like the negative, the negative depressing version. And then, and, and, and uh, of sort of how this maybe just sort of accelerates these um, maybe somewhat dystopic, depressing uh, trends. Um, and then maybe there is this, uh, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, somewhat optimistic. There's maybe this positive version where, uh, we realize that we can't, you know, group communities in this sort of small, localized, decentralized way. Realize you can't depend on any of the of the legacy institutions. You have to build your own sort of hyper local, you know, uh, organizations. You know, maybe there's a, a crypto version of this with you know lo- local ways that, that that on a very local level you you sort of try and try and build something new, but certainly. Um, certainly it seems really bad, uh, really bad for, for all of the, all of the institution, legacy institutions and, and quite bad for, for, for capitalism writ large in the West, I would say. Yeah, let's, uh, I mean, so I think that this, this idea of this as a force for localism is definitely a, um, a, a pretty clear outcome. And I think you're seeing that on, on multiple levels. Uh, obviously you're seeing it in the, in the fact that communities have sort of had to step up and take care of each other. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, we were just talking about this before, but I live in a, in a tiny little town, uh, in the Hudson Valley and the main kind of sources of, uh, community support during this time have not been, you know, PVP loans. It's been, uh, you know, the one restaurant that's still operating doing, uh, you know, free, free meals for families, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, that are you know totally anonymous and and no questions asked, right? It, it, so you're seeing kind of that sort of community resilience infrastructure kick back in. But I think that the, there's the, there's also this uh, larger conversation about what it looks like to redesign the economy, um, uh, you know, more more structurally to be resilient, uh, or, or at least some people are thinking about that. And and now it's interesting. 
interesting because, you know, there the, there are some sort of public market actors um, like Chamath who have talked about the the, the need for resilience uh, in, in the economy. But by and large, most of kind of the public market actors are just kind of rooting for more of the same and, and this V-shaped recovery. How do you see um, how do you see the conversation playing out about these larger structural shifts uh, that 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 we need in, in terms of the economy? Things like uh, supply chains coming back home, the ability to manufacture masks or PPE or whatever it is, uh, you know, nearer. And how much is that going to be driven by uh, by by kind of existing existing companies versus uh, entrepreneurs from the ground up? I think there's a I think I think there's just going to be a complete a 180 on the on the supply chain side. And so, you know, I, I sent sent out this. Uh, we're basically we've had this 30 year trend of, of, of offshoring and and uh, and, and so you, if you're, you know, if you're a large company, you'd sort of hire a McKinsey to figure out how you can uh, create a create a hyper complex sort of offshore supply chain to cut costs. And it's sort of the, the globalization story of the last literally 30 years. And I think that that is that is um, for anything, uh, quote unquote, essential. Uh, that 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 is going to 180. You're going to have to uh, you're going to have to do things within the U.S. Uh, and have basically um, you know most of the supply chain within the U.S. I, I'd say there's other countries that we we can we can partner with that, that aren't China specifically. So there's you know obviously Mexico. That relationship I think is going to become more important versus less important over the years to come. I'd argue we're going to have a more important relationship with India than we've had historically. So I think. The, the, the era of the sort of somewhat globalized supply chain is is not completely not completely done, but certainly for essential things, um, having a much more localized supply chain is going to be going to be important. And and uh, and I, I do think there's a, a very solid startup opportunity there. I mean, certainly in a biotech context, uh, there's huge sort of entrepreneurial opportunity uh, there with you know, sort of a local supply chain for the for the drugs. I mean the Drug supply chains have historically had to be very dependent on China. That that obviously has to change. Um, in a sort of coordination, uh, just re- helping businesses re-coordinate, reorganize their supply chains. I think that's there's probably a technology startup opportunity around around doing that, uh, which is which is which is quite um, uh, quite interesting. And uh, and I think this is something that folks sort of intuitively intuitively understand. And so I, I tweeted this thing yesterday, which was sort of, you know, I, I was sort of using McKinsey as a scapegoat or as a sort of, uh, you know, buzzword for globalization. I wasn't actually picking on McKinsey specifically, but I tweeted out, you know, McKinsey uh, wanted McKinsey, but for helping companies reverse whatever McKinsey's recommended over the past 30 years. And the idea there is really uh, that, that era of helping companies uh, globalize uh, is just, I, I, I think that's just done uh, because the the sort of globalization uh, the, the the whole predicate for globalization has been uh, these ties with China and and that clearly is uh, that that clearly is 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 done now. Yeah, that that tweet uh, definitely hit a nerve, right? I think the last time I looked, it was like more than six thousand people had had favored it or something. So clearly, there is a that, that there's a shared sensibility with that, or people just hate McKinsey. But well, I, I, think <laughs> I, think I think people are looking for scapegoats, and so I feel sort of bad yeah. tweet because it was like, well, <laughs> it's sort of you know scapegoating McKinsey. It's not actually really McKinsey's uh, McKinsey's fault. They were an actor in this system, and the system 
the system was was just really has just been really screwed up and there and so I'd say it's a it's a statement on uh, people are extremely angry. People want scapegoats, but I think people viscerally feel and understand that this globalized uh, globalized world in which uh, we could just be BFF with China and, and, and depend on them for these these critical uh, critical uh, infrastructure uh, needs from supply chain standpoint that that era is done. I think people do viscerally understand that. Support for this podcast and this message come from Eris X. With ErisX, you can trade spot and regulated futures on cryptocurrencies through a licensed U.S.-based exchange. ErisX believes in fair access for all. Sign up today to take advantage of zero fees and learn more at erisx.com slash consensus. This episode is also sponsored by the Stellar Foundation. The Stellar Network connects your business to the global financial infrastructure. Whether you're looking to power a payment application or issue digital assets like stablecoins or digital dollars, Stellar is easy to learn and fast to implement. Start your journey today at stellar.org slash coindesk. Our final sponsor is Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund. In times like these, diversification is key. Consider Grayscale Digital Large Cap Fund, ticker symbol GDLC. It's the only publicly traded investment product that offers diversified exposure to large cap digital currencies, all from your brokerage account. For more information, visit grayscale.co slash coindesk. That's G-R-A-Y scale dot C-O slash coindesk. I think that part of why... Uh, you know, part of your context, there's, it's almost like there's another tweet that I think could be paired with it that you sent out, which is basically saying uh, prediction that the people who uh, create the next normal, who actually pave the path for the next normal will not be those same people who crafted this ludicrous global supply chain dependency while self-actualizing solely through frequent flyer status. And I think that the point here, and I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth now, is there is a sense of you see all of these companies uh, like doing 180s literally overnight and trying to like getting contracts from cities to reimagine things. You know what I mean? And, uh, and and it's sort of like it's a it's a little bit of a of, of a bitter pill to swallow that they're just able to kind of shift on a dime and reposition themselves as experts in this new thing, which is by definition because it's new, a thing that people don't really have expertise in. Yep, totally, to- totally agree. It's going to be this this new crop of of companies of people, and then I think the I always like to think in terms of time scales, and so you know one of the things implicit with narrative violations is. Something can be a narrative violation, be counter narrative at one moment in time. So there was a moment in time at which remote work, you know, many years ago, you know, things like uh, Zoom, uh, Slack that would enable remote work were were counter narrative, were narrative violations. That was a good moment in time to invest. Now those are popular narratives, the narrative of remote work, work from home. So it's arguably a sort of overheated moment in time. I wouldn't necessarily want to get involved in sort of remote work companies today as a as investors, the timescale element to this, and I think that there is a massive timescale element to the shift that we're now going through. So I think folks are tempted to be like, oh, well, we're reopening. And, uh, and so, sort of, so yeah, it's going to be like a year or two years and, and we, we sort of, you know, can, can repair things. But actually, I think we're sort of, a, there's like a 10-year uh, time horizon where just all of these things are going to change. Uh, you know, I sort of liken this to a platform shift like the like the iPhone, it's been just this consumer behavior shock uh, to the system. And so there's going to be this sort of 10-year wave of new innovations that, that ideally will, will come out um, uh, to, 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 to address new needs that we, that we didn't have before pre, uh, pre-virus. And so I think folks uh, have a tough time thinking in 10-year time horizon increments, but that's actually the type of time scale that this is all going to play out, play out on. And so that's a long-winded way of saying, 
you know, maybe McKinsey will pick up a few a few projects over the next few months, but but long term they're kind of screwed. Yeah, I, well, and it's there's there are people who are going to you know there's a lot of people who are having kind of those uh, heterodox ideas validated now, right? Like one person that we've had on the podcast before is Peter Zan, who wrote Disunited Nations, and uh, it looks particularly prescient now in the context of this, and it's basically arguing that it, you know we were in the next ten years going to end this era no matter what. It's just that Corona did it in a in, in massive fashion, um, and, and so I think that you know in the same way as uh, as sort of like th- those ideas were out there right but again they were kind of lurking in these narrative violations uh versus kind of in the mainstream and you might see the uh the, the people and companies who are in those spaces start to emerge now um I, so another question for you that i, I want to actually come back to to work from home and, and maybe just uh, you know we'll go through a, a number of the different pertinent narrative battlegrounds almost right now um but b- before that you know w- so a, a piece that you tweeted out which I, I also really liked uh john luddig wrote this great piece about the tailwinds in venture capital and the argument was basically that we're shifting in a, in a kind of an era way away from uh just the the total blue oceans uh you know westward i, I was almost thinking about the westward expansion when there's just so much of america to claim and then at some point it started to get competitive and the thesis is that uh, you're starting to see actual zero sum competition you're going to see more zero sum competitions between internet companies because you don't just have the kind of unlimited tailwind of of growth of just more people coming online more people spending uh, more time online right at some point people are spending as much time online as they can and a lot of his piece is about uh why venture capital might need to shift back to being really about vision uh, because there's going to be a new financial infrastructure, things like ClearBank that fund uh, that fund debt, right, and, and change the way that that even these new companies uh, uh, fund themselves. I wonder, do you think that this sort of Ten-year uh, shift that you're describing uh, of a, a real reworking of the global economy uh, is is a, a, a new space that will is it basically a new type of tailwind? The, the the sense that we have to kind of start a mass scale project to to redesign the economy to bring it back closer to us, at least around these essentials. Does that create a a, a kind of a, a different tailwind for venture capital for entrepreneurs? Um, you know, I'd like to believe that would be sort of the positive version of it. Um, I, I worry that actually, in the, certainly in the world of the internet, which I think is what, what John uh, Luddig, former colleague at Founders Fund, really focused on his piece talking about software, talking about in, in, innovation on the internet, um, my sort of abstract sense of not having thought about it would be that Actually, what we're getting through through COVID is this this crazy acceleration and in internet ubiquity from everyone being at home, which would which would basically mean that once we're on the other side of this, we'd see an even faster deceleration um, because we'll be closer to closer to full internet penetration than we than we were before. But but definitely, if there's sort of uh, so, so I, I I'd almost argue that um, that uh, that it's actually not even clear that um, that. Uh, that uh that that this is going to um not even clear this is gonna uh there's a positive version to the to the john argument now all of that said um it does feel like we're at sort of version 2.0 of all of these key things so like video conferencing online education you know online entertainment 
uh, you know, we've got ver- versions of companies doing these things. So there's, you know, there's, there's Zoom, there's the online education companies, an investor company called Lambda School, which is one of them. Other, you know, obviously the, the streaming companies. It, it, it seems like streaming is probably the, the most baked in terms of the table set of who the players are. I'd certainly say that uh, the video conferencing, it feels like there's actually just a lot of room for, for new entrants there. And yeah, it'll be sort of zero sum competitive. Or, or um, you know, uh, it's sort of quite winner take all. But I don't think Zoom is sort of the terminal video conferencing company. I'd say online education, huge open uh, field, uh, and that's going to be less zero sum than, than video conferencing. There can be multiple winners, and it's really unclear what those companies are going to be. I'd say we're just getting started on, um, you know, something Bology, uh, mutual friend of ours, I think, called this the decentralized calls this decentralized healthcare, uh, the idea of, you know, obviously telemedicine, but that's just sort of piece one of, you could imagine, uh, just a much more decentralized uh, healthcare industry. And, uh, and and it feels like that's a big white space. And so, and so, yeah, there is, there is potentially this, uh, this, um, the, this set of new tailwinds, but I think the, the Ludwig, Ludwig argument uh, is just, is just basically, um, is just more true now than it was pre-COVID. Yeah, that's, I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, you know, it's interesting the online education piece, kind of validating uh, what you were just saying. So I spent a couple years, a long time ago now, six or seven years ago, with um, a company called Learn Capital, which is one of the first uh, one of the first San Francisco investors to focus on education exclusively as um, like it was a, it wasn't a a double bottom line fund, right? Where they were trying to have uh, you know social impact as well. It was just a traditional venture fund. In fact, I think that their first fund was a carve out from funders founders fund way back in the day. Really? Um, that was before I joined. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't like yeah. double bottom line. I, I don't like double bottom line funds. So good to hear there wasn't one of those. Those never worked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and it was just you know it was the their whole thesis was like, look, you know, this is a hugely important economically massive area of the economy. Like you can have good. Like it's it's not that they didn't care about the sort of the, the social impact of things. It's just going to be a byproduct of, of funding good companies. But it was interesting because at that time, you know, I got in. I, I joined well one because I thought that the, the guys who were running it were were incredibly smart, and I really wanted to learn from them, but two, because the, you know, to me, the education system is one of the singular most broken things. I mean, it, it absolutely destroys people's ambition uh, in so many contexts. And I think uh, you know, it, it needs a, a total structural reimagine, reimagination. The problem was when I got into it is that the most valuable thing you could be doing in education in 2011, 2012, 2013 was to basically uh, get a big piece of the, you know, effectively regulatory capture or capture, you know, government dollars going into local schools. So as more dollars became available for uh, kind of mandated technology to communicate between parents and students, going and capturing that was much more interesting economically than uh, than starting a, a big new version of a company, right? General Assembly uh, was one of the investments uh, back in the day. Um, and it's just more more valuable to go after the kind of the, the, the K-12 normal market. I think that when you start to see an actual uh, opening in the higher education model and that huge money honeypot for reimagining things and, and designing it differently, you're going to see a lot of a, a lot of new entrants to the space that look really radically different than, than what we've seen before. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with that. And then I think the, the challenge on it is that a world in which we can actually have the, 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 the truly disruptive um, 
online education innovation writ large. So by that, I mean sort of the end of, of four-year residential colleges with, with, a few, with a few exceptions, a world in which that's, uh, and, you know, sort of the rise of sort of more decentralized, not necessarily homeschooling, but certainly a sort of much more decentralized approach to, to K-12. to um, A world in which that's true, I think, is a world in which basically uh, the virus uh, ends up being really, really bad. And so I don't know if we we want to live in that world because you need to basically, do, you need it to disrupt sort of people's willingness to go to campuses. So it needs to be bad enough where people aren't going to go to go to campuses anymore because um, you're sort of too congregated in large groups. And I, I have a tough time sort of, I don't, I don't actually think that's the direction we're heading. And so the online education, decentralized education, it's, all, it's, you know, there's maybe these narrow areas I think there are these narrow areas where it can, it can, you can build these large companies. And so we're optimistic on something like a, a Lambda school or, you know, something maybe like an out school where you can maybe narrowly with Lambda build it with reskilling uh, for, 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 for um, you know, tech, tech and tech adjacent jobs. You can maybe narrowly build it with, uh, with homeschooling, with out school or wonder school or, or those companies. Uh, and, and, and then to have a sort of huge paradigm shift. I think maybe the virus would have to be worse than it is, and, and I don't I don't want that to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, actually. I think, and this is my general feeling, maybe this is a good context, actually, to get into work from home. I think that we have this tendency when we're talking about these shifts, and it's understandable, right? Because you kind of zoom out to like, well, what's the opposite of the system we have now? And is that what we're headed into? When really, what a, a lot of times these shifts look like, I think, is natural market forces of increased choice coming back in in some ways. Right. And so, you know, for me, going back to your point, I think what we'll start to see with with higher education is not, uh, you know, a, a closure of all these four year universities. It'll be a different calculation among people about what the, the cost benefit analysis is, which might put pressure on certain parts of the market, you know, to to reduce prices. Or you might see a lot more Lambda school for X. Right. And, and, and I think that a lot of the success of those perhaps industry focused training things will be about do companies actually decide that they like hires from those areas, right? If you started a Lambda school for marketing, would the DDBs and, and, and whatever of the world actually hire those people? Or are they just going to be looking for kind of traditional paths? And, and who knows, but it's going to be less, uh, 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 my, or my guess is that it's less a full scale shift from, from one paradigm to another and more just these things kind of creeping around the margins and creating more optionality. And I, I think that, you know, we were talking about work from home in, in a similar light. You've had kind of an interesting journey following on Twitter for the last two months or so uh, in your in your work from home thoughts, uh, take us through kind of how, how you thought about it at the beginning, and then and then how it's kind of shifted to where you are now. Sure. So um, I've been pretty schizophrenic on it uh, for for many years, and and certainly gotten more so over the past few months. And so I've long thought it's it's what we would call a narrative mirage. So it's sort of this this thing where you know as you've articulated it can maybe exist on the margins. It works for some companies. To be fully remote, but it's sort of an overhyped sector. You've got sort of a million remote work enablement and collaboration tool uh, startups out there. They're all you know really well funded. Lots of competition among VCs who invest in them. So, sort of long thought it was sort of this overhyped area because ultimately, um, I'm a big believer in uh, you get a lot more. Uh, you you will give a lot more and get a lot more out of your out of your work. Uh, it, it, if you feel sort of very deeply interpersonally connected uh, to the people you're working with, saying there's something sort of elemental to work, uh, to sharing a space with people, uh, being being live with them in person, 
I would, and, uh, and which meant that sort of re- remote work would never fully take over. And then just on a more basic level, uh, if, you're the, if you're the CEO of a company, um, you, you sort of, I think in the old paradigm, wouldn't want your, your teams all working remotely because you want to actually be making sure people are actually working by, by seeing them in the office. And that's sort of the easiest proxy for, uh, for, for seeing if people are actually working is, is are, they, are they in the office doing things on their computers? And, and, and so it had been quite skeptical of it. Obviously, we've seen just an insane uh, acceleration uh, in remote work over the last few months, given everyone's basically, everyone in a white collar job basically had to, had to work remote uh, in almost every, in almost every state. And, uh, and so I, I basically, where I've netted out is, um, is, is it's uh, sort of, it's an, incidentally, the hype was warranted because of this, because of this COVID acceleration. So there certainly is going to be a lot more a lot more remote work across the board, um, but I think it is actually going to be um, predominantly concentrated in, cat- in areas that are gonna, going to be uh, less and less important uh, in, in the future. And so, um, and, and so, you know, I, 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 in, uh, in terms of functioning within a, within a company, and so, um, uh, you know, I, I'd say uh, that I, I actually. Um, you know, I, I think it's real, um, but actually there are these, you, uh, uh, anything that's sort of essential, the, the essential worker categories, um, you know, th- those folks can't really work remotely. Um, and uh, the blue collar uh, categories that sort of we're going to become increasingly dependent on, certainly in a context where we're insuring um, wide swaths of our supply chain over the next decade, uh, those folks can't work remotely. And then uh, I don't think the hybrid really works. I think you have to be either entirely remote uh, or, or entirely uh, in, in the office. And so, so I'd say it's the hype to date has been justified, but I think we're probably on the verge of it of remote work being overhyped yet again. Uh, and uh, and uh, and then we'll probably land at a, in a equilibrium where you know there's some companies that are fully remote. It works well. You know, I think a number it'll work well for a number of the large Silicon Valley companies that, uh, you know, don't, you, know, you don't really need that many people to do much work because uh, they're sort of natural monopolies. So like a Google would be a, an example in search. And then, um, and then I think there'll be a subset of companies that uh, you actually will have people, employees and their families will actually co-locate uh, with, with, the, with, with the company, like a resurgence in company town. So you have the Citadel hedge fund did a version of this where Ken Griffin, the founder, moved all of their traders into the uh, Four Seasons Palm Beach. I think they're all still there to do sort of a makeshift company town. And I think in certain key uh, essential industries, uh, it, certainly in the food supply chain, other areas, you might see a resurgence in company towns where, where families co-locate uh, with their company. Uh, and then, uh, and then I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of companies that just have to take um, take all of the uh, uh, sort of all, all of the uh, public health, quote unquote, public health stuff that you'd expect, uh, or many people would expect a government to, to take care of, will just have to privatize that and do it themselves. That so people can come into the office. So that's like, um, you know, all of the all of the basic uh, sanitization, temperature checking, um, uh, you know, uh, s- symptomatic surveillance, etc. Stuff. I think that's going to have to just be executed by companies. Because I think a lot of companies are just going to go back to offices. Yeah, it's. I think that it's an interesting point that there's these 
the the the, the question of of how hybrid you can make it uh, versus it being kind of a, a structural decision from the ground up will be really interesting to see. Um, what are other areas uh, you know as you're sitting here and thinking about uh, narrative mirages versus uh, versus real real shifts uh, that you think are I guess what are what are narrative battlegrounds that you're watching right now in terms of trying to understand how much things are going to change post COVID nineteen. Uh, I'd say that one I'm quite obsessed with is 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 the media, and so I I, I sort of argue that um, that may be one area where where things really do really do change going forward. Is um, the legacy has just gotten so many things so wrong uh, at this point um, that 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 I think this might be the might be the breaking point where it actually does go into much more. In a much more decentralized direction, you see early efforts, things like Substack, that sort of enable anyone to to start their own media company. Uh, certainly, you can monetize uh, a following on Twitter through you know someone someone like a um, uh, someone like a, the guy uh, behind Stratechery, this this very well known uh, technology newsletter. Ben Thompson has been able to to really to really prove there's a business model there. Um, you know, someone like Jessica Less with the information has done it on a larger scale. And so I, I think that there, there could be a wave of citizen journalists, decentralized media. I think that's a very interesting area to watch. Um, I think the, uh, I, I think the, 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 the whole idea, while I don't believe we're going to see the sort of end of the four-year residential uh, sort of liberal arts college in the United States, unfortunately, uh, yet, um, I, I, I do think that sort of the, it's sort of the end of career tracks. And so, you know, when I graduated college in sort of, uh, you know, 2004, um, there was sort of the consulting, eye banking, uh, pr- brand management type, type tracks. If you, if you had a business degree that you would go on, you know, for a number of years recently, there was sort of like, well, you would do product management or software engineering or finance uh, or consult, consulting still stuck around. And I, I do actually think it's the end of those tracks. And I think we're going to see people are going to just be doing much more idiosyncratic things. And, uh, and there's probably businesses built around that. And so you'll sort of have these weird idiosyncratic influencers um, in, in all of these micro niche areas. It's kind of like what you do. You're, you're sort of this, this idiosyncratic influencer. And, and I think there's, there, you, that there can be millions and millions of, of people like that that own these specific niches. And, uh, and, and I'm really quite interested in what are the tools that can enable, enable those folks, because that is kind of the, that is kind of the direction. I think, I think things are going, there's a sense in which being a, an influencer in a sort of very narrow area, uh, having a highly engaged, but relatively small audience, um, is, 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 is kind of like now the new aspirational thing to do versus, uh, versus joining a McKinsey. Yeah, it's really interesting too. I think that what people have discovered is that uh, these niches, be, because of the power of the internet to converge uh, people of of shared interest, these niches can actually support uh, an individual like it really, really well, right? From a from an economic standpoint, even if they're really narrow. I mean, you see this too, not just with uh, you know, kind of uh, the 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 types of things that that I'm spending time on, but like in gaming, right? You can have micro. Obviously, the people look 
at the you know the biggest Twitch streamers all the time, but there's this huge long tail of games that have enough of a of an audience to support some number of uh, of independent media professionals, basically you know who are who are creating content. And uh, and, and it turns out the economics as as an individual look really different when you start to rehabituate people to also pay for content that they like. Uh, whether it's directly uh, in terms of subscription, like Ben Thompson's newsletter, or just in terms of kind of the uh, you know the, the streaming uh, monthly subscription type things, which don't don't really get you anything different. It's just a way of uh, of supporting those creators. Um, I, I think that that's a I, I tend to agree that I think that it's an early trend. I also think that we we still are at the the front end of figuring out the right ways to monetize it. Like if you look at the difference in the uh, the, the Chinese uh, podcasting market versus the American podcasting market, it's massive from a from a, a, a revenue standpoint and it's oh, because it's crazy it's it's wild mm-hmm. it, it's wild that we don't have that uh I, that it feels like that shift is definitely going to happen uh here over the next number of years sorry keep going no, no, no. It, it, so uh, let me ask you a question too about. I think that the the media thing is particularly interesting. You know, my vantage point is influenced uh, a little bit by the particular kind of business niche that that I'm in in the context of the Bitcoin industry because this is, I think, one of the things that's fascinating is that you have independent media brands that grow up alongside uh, the the, uh, the the kind of the the mainstay media brands, right? You have you know CoinDesk in the block, uh, but then you have a, a lot of people who are. Getting Getting their analysis not from those sites, but from kind of the the independent uh, voices that they they can subscribe to, either via you know podcast or, or whatever it is. And I would argue that a lot of those folks are as influential as anyone at uh, at these media sites. And I don't think that's basically, by the way, a, a knock on the the kind of the the legacy style media. I think it may just be a different paradigm. In fact, you know my my relationship with CoinDesk is I'm independent but partnered with them for distribution, which is I think a, a a, a really interesting and very different way to go about it. And when you start to see, you know, the Matt Tybees of the world who left Rolling Stone to start their Substack, do that more and more often, you're going to have a, a, a kind of power shift in, in the relationship between people uh, that could get really interesting. And I think that we're, you know, right now, you know, I know that one of the things you've been noticing or spending time on too is we're seeing kind of the the uh, it feels like a new all time high or apex in some of that in terms of the kind of uh, the individual influence or power of both Rogan and more recently during this quarantine of uh, of Dave Portnoy from from Barstool Sports. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd I'd say there's a um, I'd say there's this sort of uh, there's this sense in which we're, um, you know, we're, 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 uh, so I'd, I'd say Portnoy and Rogan are, are different. And so I, I, I think with Rogan, um, uh, I think the Rogan story, uh, is, is maybe, uh, is maybe a, a, a story of, uh, of actually, um, of the power of, of, plat- of, of platforms is a sort of, you know, like someone like Rogan, you think about him just in the context of society He's probably like the most well-liked person uh, in in America. So you know, he's someone who could, if he ran for president, he'd, he'd probably win. Um, he, uh, you know, he is just universally. I, I don't think there's anyone on on in in America who would say they dislike Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, one could argue whether he's overrated or or, or underrated, but but certainly he's very likable. Uh, has a he had huge audience. He really can get anyone anyone he wants on his on his show and. And uh, and and sort of the fact that sort of you did this deal with Spotify, sort of this three-year type type deal, uh, to me is is more of a comment on the power of 
the power of platforms, um, then, uh, then uh, you know, I, w- I would have expected Rogan to have created his own platform or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would have hoped he would have created his own platform versus someone like Portnoy, um, who, you know, he, he founded Barstool Sports. Now he's sort of become a, become a media personality, uh, sort of going in a, I would argue, maybe a different direction of might, might actually be doing more of the uh, trying to have political influence or create his own platform or something like that. But I guess with Rogan, my feeling is I, I'm a little bit disappointed because if like the most loved person in the country, if like this is it for him, this, you know, reported hundred million, it's probably a fair amount more Spotify deal. Um, it, it, it's, it's like, wait, does that put a cap on what you can actually do as a, as an influencer and, and how does that impact sort of the influencer economy? My hope is that he's just this idiosyncratic person and, and it doesn't, but I was actually somewhat disappointed with, with that, with that news. Although I, I'm a fan of Spotify. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, actually. I think um, it was fascinating to see people's Insta reactions. And, you know, I, in general, uh, people are free to do whatever deal they want. And it's a ridiculous amount of money for something you created from scratch, you know, so so respect whatever the whatever Absolutely. the logic was. But it, but it was funny to see people who are like, oh, this makes so much sense. He's been so worried about YouTube censorship. He's been talking about it all the time. And it's like, well, the, the answer to that is to move to a different centrally controlled platform and negate your ability to put this thing on any other platform. It's like, that's not an answer to censorship, you know? Um, but I, I do think, you know, one of the things that it also brought up for me, which specifically with podcasting, is that I realized that we don't really know what the half-life of a podcast is supposed to be right we have a rough sense of what like how long a tv series lasts even though that's also shifting based on different models and how netflix does things versus how hbo does things or whatever but like you know if you have a, a successful show you're expecting it to go seven or eight se- seasons right if it's a drama maybe a little bit longer if it's a uh you know whatever a, a comedy or something a sitcom that, that that doesn't matter um we have no idea it's like a, is our most podcasts three-year things and then they do a different podcast are they five-year things are they 10-year things it's it's like early enough in the medium that it's actually hard to know. And I think part of, you know, the, there were some people who pay more attention to, to Rogan than I do, who were like, dude seems tired. And if you're tired, and all of a sudden, you know, there's and who knows what sort of pressure he feels being the middle ground for everyone, you know, it seems like sometimes or it could seem like, uh, you know, and someone offers you a, a ridiculous nine figure deal, like maybe you just of course, you're going to take it. But I, I do think it's it's an interesting question that you bring up of uh, what it means in terms of the the full upside potential of, uh, of an independent kind of media enterprise. Yeah. Um, really, really, really good point. Um, and, and we I don't think we fully understand the value of the back catalog either on these podcasts. And so, um, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which a lot, most of the revenue for in, in the historical sort of cable television paradigm, uh, the bulk of the revenue was, was sort of from, from reruns actually. And maybe there's some version of that that's true for, for podcasts. I don't know. I think it's too early. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, I, I've picked your brain on a ton of different things and really appreciate the time. Maybe just by way of wrapping up, you had one other tweet that I thought was was really, really interesting. And I, I want to see it's a month on from when you said it. And I want to see if you're if you still feel this way or if it's evolved at all. So this was on April 30th. You tweeted out, if you run a zombie company, now is the time to try and sell it. If you work for a zombie company, now is the time to change jobs. It'll be years until folks are as optimistic on the economy as they're going to be over the next three months. Narrative mirage recovery. So first, I guess, what, what did you mean by narrative mirage recovery? And second, how has the last month uh, changed or, or reaffirmed this, this take? 
Oh, I, I believe it now more than ever. And so I, I would say, um, I would say uh, that it's a narrative mirage recovery because basically the, the Fed is, uh, it's sort of the, the perma, perma QE, uh, Fed money printing uh, on, on steroids plus HGH. Uh, I mean, the amount of stimulus that's gone is just, is just insane. Uh, and then the reality is just that uh, uh, can't, can't do it. Uh, you can't uh, infinitely do it. And so I'd, I'd say that uh, it's, it's very much a narrative mirage recovery. Uh, that'll become clear uh, in, uh, starting in Q4. And then the reality is actually, uh, I, I think, regardless of the fact it's a narrative mirage recovery, the U.S. is on a relative basis uh, still better off uh, than, than most, most other countries. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Peter, Peter Zan. I think he makes the argument uh, quite articulately that sort of on a relative basis, we're, we're still probably better off than most other places. But, uh, but, but, but that, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, it's, uh, that, that the, 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 the economic miracle is, is going to continue. I think it's, 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 it's now come to a, a screeching halt and that'll become clear to folks uh, toward the end of the year. Jeff, awesome to talk to you. Great to get your insights. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, man. My pleasure. The thing that stands out to me after that conversation is this idea of how much we think things are going to change when we see a new force for change in society. So the work from home example and the higher education example were the two that we discussed most extensively in this context. But we have this tendency to assume or or somehow get into this headspace that when new forces present themselves, it's going to change things wholly and immediately rather than being a gradual incremental process where first bits in the margins start to change and then it slowly goes more mainstream until big swaths of what was previously outside the mainstream have become normalized. I think that's what you're going to see in higher ed, as I mentioned in the show, where different industries get their own version of Lambda School, get their own version of Y Combinator that becomes as if not more respected than traditional degrees. I think that's what's going to happen with work from home. I don't think that cities are all of a sudden going to lose their appeal overnight, but there's big sets of people demographically with different types of interest who are going to design their lives around the ability to work from home now, and that's all of a sudden going to be massively more respected among corporations. I think that it's really important not just to peel back narratives, but also to look at both scale and breadth of impact over time and and really try to have a more nuanced view of the world. Anyways, that uh, is my battle and my cross all the time, this idea of bringing nuance to digital conversations. Anyways, I appreciate you at least allowing me to do that by hanging out with you today. Until tomorrow, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.